Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here at Intown. We have been in a series on the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to be continuing that even this morning on Christmas Eve, and you'll see why in just a moment. But just as a reminder, as Becky comes to read for us, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were struggling. They were struggling because they felt pressure in their lives to, to recant, to turn away from Jesus. But it wasn't a recanting that we might think of with persecution, like they were afraid of being thrown to lions or anything like that. Rather, it was kind of an easy persecution, which actually in some ways makes it a little more insidious. All they had to do was blend back into the background to be just like everyone else around them and everything would be okay. There's an element of that for us in our lives today as well. And so our whole series looking at Hebrews has been called Take Heart. Our Savior has come. What does it mean for us to see in Jesus the one we need, the hope we need to stand fast and to take heart? Becky, would you come and read for us? Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, again, thank you for coming, for being one of us, for all of the implications that we will get to unpack on this day. Would you, for just a brief moment, quiet our hearts from the hustle and bustle of the day and help us lean in on you? Holy Spirit, teach us, comfort us, Remind us that you're here. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, it's already been said a couple of times this morning, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. What, what actually is that? Well, I want to take a step back and unpack that for a moment, lest I seem cynical and Scrooge-like, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to do it. Because when, when you hear Merry Christmas or when someone you know, says Merry Christmas to you, when you say to someone else, what actually are you doing? Are you um, wishing them a Merry Christmas, as the uh, song often says? Are you imploring them that they must have a certain emotion around Christmas? Are you just stating a fact that this time is merry? Um, What are you doing? 
my wife Chrissy and I used to talk, when I say I, we used to talk, she used to make fun of me for uh, what we used to call my authenticity bug. Um, I was the type of person, was, maybe still am, the type of person who head and heart, there's not a lot of distance between. I wear my emotions on my sleeve quite often, and I struggle with not Let's put it this way. I'm the type of person that usually I'm talking to on stage. If ever I say when I'm leading worship, whether or not you feel like you mean this song or not, it's true. And as you sing this song, you're reminded of the truth of it, even if you don't always feel it. I'm that guy. All right? I'm the guy who struggles to sing stuff like joy to the world if I'm not feeling joyful. I am someone who struggles to sing, you know, how happy I am to be in love with Jesus if in that moment I'm kind of angry at Jesus. I just struggle with that connection. So the idea of Merry Christmas is one of those things that our society really builds up this idea that this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, right? And so any emotion that we feel that might be to the contrary kind of can get into the way of this. Now, there are, I think, two types of people in the world. One, uh, one type is those of you who are getting this right now and who you're nodding your heads and you're like, yes, Steve, you're naming something that's also true about me. The other half of you hate that first half. The other half of you are like, no, this is the most joyful, happy, wondrous time of the year. And all of you just need to get with the program, have some more sugar. It's going to be okay. Now, here's the reality. As much as I laugh about this, both of those things are true at the same time. Both of those things are true at the same time. And actually, if, if we stop with the joke for a moment and kind of sit down and analyze our hearts... I think both of those things are true for most of us, if not all of us, all the time. All the time, we really do have some things to be incredibly thankful for, some things to be joyous about. And the birth of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in our lives is one of those, authentically, actually. And at the same time, life is not the way it's supposed to be. This is actually a very Christian idea. The fact that both of these things are true at the same time. The reason I want to point that out as we move into Hebrews this morning is, is for a couple of reasons. We're about to get into um, a little bit of history. Some of you love that. Some of you struggle through the point of that. We want to get to modern application. Both of those are okay but I don't want us to get lost in some of those details. So I want us to point out right at the beginning here that this duality, that maybe things are in some ways better than they could be. There's some things to be joyful about, some things to be happy about, and also that there's some really deep things broken. I think this is actually a, a, a concept in that it's a very Christian idea that actually a lot of your neighbors and your friends and your family members hold to as well. 
that I don't want to say it is, it is more than a Christian idea. In fact, I would say exactly the opposite. It's so Christian of an idea. It's so true of an idea that even people who don't follow Jesus, who don't acknowledge the shape and the story of the world the way we do, I think implicitly lean into this as well. How do I know this? Well, watching uh, news this week, um, I actually didn't watch a lot of news about Christmas. I watched a ton of political news, which kind of makes my stomach sick a little bit. But as I watched this, I realized that, you know, and, and some of you can figure this out depending on what news station you're watching or what interviewer you're watching or who you're listening to, um, what the point of the broken is, right? Is the point of the broken um, those people in that city, wherever that city is, Washington, California, Kentucky, New York, wherever, is that the point of the broken? Is the point of the broken um, individual people in those places and their own personal evil or their own selfishness or their own greed? Is the point of the broken some systematic issues that have to be dealt with not on a personal level but on a structural level? And how are we going to get people in power who can deal with that thing? Is the point of the broken something that's not people-oriented at all? It's the earth, and the earth is sick, and the earth is dying, and we have to figure out a way to save this. Yes, to all of it. Ish. These are all elements of our broken world. Scripture, however, does not put the blame, if you will, of brokenness at any one of those places. Rather, it does something different. It sees that all brokenness stems from all of existence's relationship with God. And all of existence's relationship with God being interrupted, broken, corrupted, noise put into it, however we want to think of these things. So as we come into Hebrews, let us remember, in many respects, our society our longing for something good, our cynicism with what is deeply broken, even amongst our misguided attempts to analyze and diagnose and fix it, there's an echo. There's an echo of truth there. And this morning I'm challenged to try to hear that echo of truth as I move into Christmas dinners with friends and with family, as I am sure discussions will come up around those tables of things that I will disagree with, um, as I will get um, angry or frustrated and want to walk away from certain conversations, I'm reminded that all of us are deeply broken because of sin. All of us have distance between us and God. And actually, my friends and my family's longing for something to make the broken things right and the dark things light, that is actually an impulse 
that is coming from Jesus and it is an impulse that God can actually use to point them back to him. So what does our scripture this morning say about that, that impulse? Three things quickly I want to get into. The first, let's talk about purpose. So again, Hebrews is this letter which is written to a bunch of Christians to have them take heart, but it's not written just randomly to Christians. It is specifically a letter of love and of context written to a group of um, uh, Judaic Christians, Jewish Christians, but who were also very Greek-influenced, who probably were living in not Jerusalem, but one of the kind of other Hellenistic cities around, and you could be talking about Alexandria or somewhere in modern-day Turkey, anything like that. Um, and these individuals uh, would have had the great basis of the Old Testament as their faith. Yes, they had come to Jesus and were now believing in Jesus, But what the author of Hebrews is doing, this pastor who literally is writing a sermon to his people, is trying to help them see how Christ is all they need, that they didn't mess up when they kind of fell into Christianity, if you will. Their Christianity is not somehow um, less because of uh, the Judaism that they've left behind. Um, He actually wants to honor that Judaism, while at the same time being able to say that that is not ultimately enough. So he goes into this discussion of the sacrificial system. Many of you might know in the Old Testament, um, and, and if not, kind of you can imagine details pretty quickly, that there was a requirement to deal with a lot of different things, not just sin, um, also with new birth or with um, praising God for abundance, lots and lots of different things. There would be sacrifices brought to the temple. Sin, though, obviously, were the most striking of these sacrifices and the most striking, um, most bloody of sacrifices. Depending on who you were, possibly also depending on how grievous of your sin, also on how rich you were, on what you could bring, what you could provide, you might be bringing um, a lamb, a goat, some birds, and I'm sorry if that is a little shaky. I am reminded of one Christmas Eve many, many years ago when my wife's younger sister was still in high school. I, of course, was you know the, the newlywed guy, and my wife has only two sisters, and so I kind of also get to be big brother for all of them. So uh, my wife's mother and my mother-in-law had just cooked this wonderful, amazing dinner, which included a very large, beautiful rack of lamb. And um, my wife's sister would, you know, cut a piece and start to eat. And every time she brought it to her mouth, bah. I would just do that. Bah. Well, Katie almost threw up on the table and um, may have been vegetarian for the next three years as a result of that. Um, but, but, it, but, it, but it strikes it like that. That is a real thing. This was actual death and pain connected to sin and suffering, something that often we do not feel today. 
The point the writer of Hebrews makes, though, is, is a striking one, but it's one that the writers of the Old Testament began to pick up over time. And what it was was this, that the sacrifices themselves kind of weren't the point. Like, like the, the idea being just as the Old Testament prophets would often write of how absurd it was for other nations around them to you know, cook and eat with things like wood and stone and then carve some of that into an idol, set that idol up, and then start worshiping it. In the same way, many Old Testament writers picked up on the idea that if God is God, if he is holy, if he is other, if he is amazing then the blood of this goat, the blood of this sheep, the blood of this ram, these birds, no matter how pure it is, cannot by itself cross this immeasurable gap that my sin has caused between God and myself. There's no way. It just can't happen. So the Old Testament writers, including who Hebrews quotes here, the writer of Psalm chapter 40, pick up on this idea that, that the sacrificial system was supposed to orient us. It was supposed to shape us. And by us, I mean the people of God in the Old Testament. You were supposed to know as you bring the sheep that you called Lammy and you kind of walked together and raised up, and then you bring this thing as a sacrifice, you're supposed to know that this by itself cannot, Lammy cannot pay for your sins. And thus, the, the dependency on God, the realization of how bad our sin, this was supposed to shape God's people. I mention that shaping aspect because, again, I want to bring out how many of us and our friends and our neighbors, not only do they feel the broken, as much as it annoys me, I actually think that the hours and hours and hours of talk radio they listen to is actually in some respects ritualistic. It is in some respects a participation in wanting to push back the darkness. I mean, think about the amount of time we pour and effort we pour into exercise, into recycling, into um, spouting off on social media against those who had take different perspectives on how broken the world is than us. There is an, a shaping element to doing all of these things. And yet, it's a trap. It is a trap. The trap of sacrifice is something that the author of Hebrews goes into great detail about. The trap is what, if many of the Old Testament writers began to pick up on this, the idea that the, the rituals of sacrifice in and of themselves could do nothing to save us, that their, their idea was to keep us focused on and to orient us into a dependency on God, a need for him at all times, and really a looking forward to, God, what are you actually going to do to pay for this sin in me? Because I know this sheep isn't it. 
If the writers picked up on this, sadly, many of the people of the Old Testament took the opposite approach. And this opposite approach was an approach of leaning on the system as it. Basically, it becomes contractual. If this sheep equals X number of sins, cool, I just need to raise more sheep, and then I can do whatever I want. And while I say that in a crass way, the reality is this is actually what the writer of Psalm 40 was getting into when he specifically says, I was not pleased, you you were not pleased, God, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. I mean, that's not a contradiction. God did tell them to bring said sacrifices and offerings. But what did God actually want? He wanted a changed heart. He wanted a heart tender towards him. I think often as I associate, you know, all of these things that I'm talking about pushing back on the darkness that our world does, sadly, instead of recognizing that they are good things, but in and of themselves, they cannot save us, For many of us and our friends and our neighbors, we fall into the trap of believing that these things are actually effective, that we can fix what's wrong with the world if we just push harder, if we just win this election, if we pass that piece of legislation, if my diet does not fail this year, if my son makes it into that college, if that cancer treatment works, if my mom starts talking to me again, if, if, if it becomes contractual, we equate these things. And if we equate these things, then what we also do, the mental math we do, is that if I just push a little harder, if I just try even harder this year to be a good parent, then, if I just try this year to make a little bit more money, then, if I just, if I just, if I just. The reality is this this doesn't work at all. In fact, it does exactly the opposite. Jesus quotes the apostle, uh, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in Matthew chapter 15, when he literally is yelling at the Pharisees saying, these sacrifices actually sicken me. And they sicken God. Why? Because the trap so goes that finally you just start doing lip service to the darkness. And you just move on with your own life. The trap for all of us is not a belief that there is nothing broken with the world. The trap, I think, for many of us is not even a belief that we are the Messiah and can fix everything. I think the trap is just that we think we can fix our little tiny square corner of the universe. And the way we can fix it is we just do a little more. I think the writer of Hebrews is in part talking to a bunch of Christians who are very easily could fall back into something else. 
Because that approach, trying to win your little tiny square corner of the universe, is exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting no matter how good of a person you are. It is exhausting no matter how merry or cheerful you think you are. It is exhausting no matter how good your intentions are. Because even your square little tiny corner of the world is so broken by sin. Your tiny square corner of your heart is so broken. You and I need something more than the blood of sheep or goats than the right politician or the right parenting philosophy could ever offer us. And that's the sacrifice we get in Jesus. In some respects, this almost doesn't feel like a Christmas sermon, right? It, it is talking about God coming and dying for us, and so we think about an adult Jesus dying for us. I would just challenge you, when you look at the manger scene that you may have in your house or you sing a Christmas carol today, what does it do to you when you think about silent night, ooh, the baby is sleeping, 30 years from now the baby's going to die for my sins? That's a lot in our heart to know actually what God has done. We don't have time to go into all of the ideas of why God couldn't just snap his fingers and make the darkness go away, why it actually took him coming himself to die. But Scripture is clear that it could be nothing less than that. It's amazing because in some respects we almost see this cosmic ripple effect all of the people who had brought sacrifices in good faith, knowing the sheep was not going to do anything for them except keep them focused on God. Jesus' death is effective for them, rippled out into history, into eternity. There are a lot of implications of the death of Jesus. But it's Christmas Eve morning, which in my family kind of feels bigger than Christmas morning because we do a big lunch. It's a big deal. So as I meditate on this passage, I just have two phrases that I want you to take to heart. The first one is enough. The death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, is enough for you. And I think that can hit us a couple of different ways. For some of us, the enoughness hits the, the tired part of us where we're working super hard and we keep wanting and keep wanting and keep wanting and keep wanting to fix what is broken. To be able to say that the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins and for mine is enough is to say... I acknowledge that I'm not enough. I have to say that. I think that's really, really hard for some of us, but it is incredibly freeing as well. 
to let the exhaustion out, to let the tears out, to let the anxiety of the moment out. Friends, how good your Christmas dinner is in the next four hours is not going to fix your broken family. How clean your house is is not going to fix your broken relationship with your son or your daughter. And I know as I look out here, I do not say that as an empty, fill-in-the-blank pastor phrase. But Jesus gets to tell you also, Christmas dinner isn't the answer to your family system. And you can rest in what he has done. His sacrifice is enough. It does not matter what they bring to the table. It does not matter what you bring to the table. His sacrifice is enough. His sacrifice is enough for the broken things that you see on television. His sacrifice is enough for the broken things you see in your own heart and your own soul. But here's the other one I want you to hold to. His sacrifice is enough for you. And, and this is one of those weird applications because I don't know that it's for everybody. I think maybe it's just for me and you get a window into my own soul. Something I have struggled with, I'll be honest, as, as one of your pastors, welcome to honesty here. Um, most of my walk as a Christian is that I love Jesus. And I think Jesus is amazing. And I think what he did is so awesome everybody else. I think it is totally possible for you and I to listen to everything I have said and everything Hebrews has said up to this point and say, oh, that's great, and walk out the door and completely and totally believe it to be true for everybody else in the room. Because even everything we've said up to this point somehow doesn't break the chink in the armor that says, but what I'm going through is not enough. Or what I've done is too bad. Or the burden I feel about the world, the, the, the trappings of church or of religion or of religiosity cannot fathom. Years and years ago, I read a, a fictional account of, um, of a Levitical priest. Some of you basically would have been me thousands of years ago in Israel. And it, it was fictional, but, but it struck me. And I don't know why, but I could never, I, could never, I could never get the picture out of my head. It was a picture of this priest accepting the sacrifices, going through all of the things, and looking out and seeing the line of people stretched out for miles, all of them carrying animals, yelling, screaming, laughing, kids going crazy, basically like church on a Sunday morning, right? And, and yet this Levitical priest, you know, arms up, literally bloodied. It smells horrible. There's a reason incense is going like crazy. And the Levitical priest looking up and looking out at people and just going, Stop sinning! 
not out of a sense of love for Jesus, but just out of a frustration of just how much this costs and this takes and how hard it is and how it seems like it's never enough. I'll be honest, I feel that sometimes as a pastor. When I hear, oh, this family's got a problem or that family is struggling with something or this has happened or that person did something. And I can get nice and high and mighty until I look at my own heart and I realize the actual screaming is, Steve, stop sinning. If Jesus is enough for anyone, he has to be enough for you. You cannot hold to this double standard that says, I am happy for everyone else. But if God knew about me, that'd be the issue. Jesus is enough for you. The Mary of Merry Christmas is not that we create this happy, fake environment that we fuel with sugar and good smells and say we can be happy. And the Mary of Christmas is not fairy dust that comes in in the form of a little baby Jesus that takes care of everything for a couple of minutes. The Mary of Merry Christmas is both that the broken will not be broken forever. And we have hope until that day. And that applies not hypothetically to somebody else. It applies to you. And it applies to me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. (sighs) Thank you for loving me. And thank you that everybody else, my church family, gets to see you take me, chief of sinners, and tell me that you love me enough. And then we get to have that conversation together. Who's the chief of sinners? Who'd you die for more? glorious thing. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.